Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to place. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. <clears throat> I thought it would be fruitful today to carry on a discussion regarding the contemporary U.S. political and social terrain of where we find ourselves in the aftermath of the November elections, what has followed since, and what it pretends for the future, especially in regard to the strength of the increasingly anti-democratic right in the current state of the U.S. left and progressive forces. With us today to share his assessments and to offer up some ideas on the way forward is the longtime political and social movement activist and author Max Elbaum. Max is a member of the, uh, excuse me, Max is a member of the Convergence Magazine editorial board and co-editor with Linda Burnham and Maria Poblet of the 2022 title, Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections that came out from, published by Or Books. He's the author, Max is the author of the recent Convergence piece titled, The MAGA Threat is Greater Today Than in 2020. In it, he states the following. Lots of hard work and savvy grassroots organizing stopped MAGA election deniers from winning battleground Senate seats and offices controlling election machinery last November. But let's not get real about the Ma- what MAGA did achieve. The bitter truth is that MAGA is more dangerous <clears throat> and better positioned to take political power in this country than it was in 2020. Max Elbaum, let's start with what you are referring to when you use the term MAGA. We think of Trump supporters in their MAGA caps, of make, it great, make America Great Again. But what do you mean? You're talking about something else. I'm talking about a right-wing movement that taps into big patterns in U.S. history of white supremacy, Christian nationalism, the idea that the only real Americans are hardworking white straight males, uh, and that they see the country as slipping away from them uh, due to demographic change and the radicalization of the newer, younger generations. So uh, the MAGA block, Make America Great Again, <clears throat> wants to basically repeal the 20th century and go back to a situation where you have a new form of Jim Crow, women pushed back in the home, LGBT people, LGBTQ people invisibilized, uh, U.S. militarism, powerful abroad, U.S. global hegemony, uh, a right-wing authoritarian movement, it wants to impose long-term minority rule and essentially a one-party state. So again, again to repeat, you argue in your piece that MAGA is more dangerous and better positioned to take political power in this country than it was in 2020. How so? Let's delve into that, that assessment. Well, you know, we saw an attempted coup in 2020, uh, and that coup came very close to succeeding. Uh, but the conditions, the MAGA bloc wasn't completely prepared for that coup. It was slapdash in terms of how it was organized and prepared, partly due to Trump's indiscipline as a fascist leader. Uh, And the Republican Party at all levels was not yet consolidated around election denying and uh, willingness to break what had been the pattern of in the last 50 years of U.S. politics. That's changed since 2020. Uh, MAGA now, the Congress, the House majority, is more consolidated around election denying, more consolidated around the legitimacy of right-wing political violence. Uh, The MAGA grip on the Supreme Court has been tightened. 
the alliance uh, and cooperation between mainstream Republican figures and open uh, fascist armed white supremacist militias uh, is uh, much tighter at that level of cooperation. January 6th is now viewed in the MAGA world as a heroic patriotic effort. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's poised to take a leading role in the House, uh, saying that if she and Steve Bannon had been in charge, uh, they would have succeeded and they would have been armed. Uh, so that situation means that one, one of the two major political parties is much more consolidated around basically election denying, uh, meaning that elections that they lose are illegitimate. The only legitimate elections are the ones that they win and the legitimacy of right-wing political violence. Uh, that is more developed on the Republican side than it was in 2020. Um, so, uh, and you have more disciplined fascist leaders like DeSantis uh, moving into positions of leadership in the MAGA bloc. Uh, you know, Trump was, uh, his particular uh, personality and leadership style unleashed the demons that had been present uh, in the Republican Party for decades and present in U.S. society since the beginning in 1619. Uh, but he's an, he was undisciplined, narcissistic, uh, you know, all of that kind of thing. And now you have a more disciplined set of people uh, who are less, uh, who are more committed to the collective project of MAGA uh, than Trump was, who's committed to his individual project. So it's a very dangerous situation. Uh, you know, I'm in the camp that says they can be beaten, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later in the program. Uh, I don't say any of this uh, to, to uh, you know, be chicken little and say the sky is falling. Uh, but we have to be realistic about what we're up against if we're going to win. If we turn away, you know, uh, I think it's James Baldwin who said, uh, not everything that can be that is faced can be defeated, but things that are not faced cannot be defeated. So we have to face the reality and then uh, develop our strategies and our work and our priorities accordingly. Max Elbaum, let's, I'm interested in your assessment of, of the meaning and result of the recent uh, fracas among Republicans over who would be Speaker of the House. Uh, it was very, it was, I think, over, overly simplified the significance of it all in, in the mainstream press, of course. Well, the mainstream press covers everything as a horse race, you know, this side, that side, you know, as if it's a football game or something like that, and, uh, you know, tries to, covers the theatrical side. Uh, underneath, um, I mean, all the factions in the Republican Party, with the exception of a handful of individuals, are now committed to the MAGA agenda. Uh, so the fight was not over fundamentals. Uh, of what the Congress, what the Republican-controlled House was going to do. But it was a fight over exactly who within that dynamic and within that spectrum was going to be calling the shots and how firm uh, the commitment was going to be uh, when the most extreme MAGA people worried about, uh, you know, vacillating elements. So the Freedom Caucus, which is pretty much uh, an openly fascist caucus in the sense of uh, not just uh, acceptance, but actual promotion of political violence, um, they were uh, demanding that McCarthy commit to the maximalist agenda that they had. And that was basically the dynamic that went through it, which, you know, how much was the Freedom Caucus going to be pulling the, calling the shots? And in the end, uh, they won. Uh, you know, McCarthy got his gavel, uh, but all the conditions under which he got it uh, were the maximalist agenda. I mean, within the MAGA bloc, those folks are the most extreme. So talk about that agenda, the elements within it. Uh, well, it's a, you know, it's an agenda that says uh, the main thing is to delegitimize our opponents, they're not real Americans. They're traitors. They're agents of the Chinese Communist Party. They're Marxists. They're, you know, uh, 
trying to, re the great replacement theory that real Americans are being replaced by immigrants uh, from Central America and other places in the global South. Uh, so their agenda is to develop a one-party state behind uh, a representative of, you know, the, who they consider the master race uh, within the United States. Uh, and the way they say doing that is uh, basically creating more crises and blaming everything on the Democrats and portraying the Democrats as, you know, socialists, Marxists, you know, friends and, of uh, illegal immigration and, and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and they want to plan to do that through control of uh, the House. They want to do investigations, make uh, as if the most important issues in the country uh, was Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, was uh, the documents found in, you know, Biden's home, uh, sort of the equivalent of the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Um, and there are investigations of the, F you know, it's kind of ironic. I mean, we're no friends of the FBI. The FBI is a completely repressive arm of the state against the left. Uh, but in the last period, there's been some pressure on the FBI to also deal with right-wing terrorism. And the Justice Department has prosecuted seven or 800 people uh, who were uh, active in the January 6th insurrection. And the Republican Party sees those people who are being, they want to stop all that. So their line is that the National security agencies have become agents of the left. I think Trump, uh, Trump on True Social the other day said the FBI was run by Marxist thugs. Uh, but the real underlying agenda there is to legitimize paramilitary right-wing violence and to focus, uh, to remove any even pretense of, uh, of the federal government investigating right-wing um, terrorism, uh, right-wing violence, or, uh, you know, those who violate civil rights laws to the extent those laws are still on the books. Uh, you're listening to longtime uh, left activist and author Max Elbaum. We're talking about the, well, the current political climate and where things are going. And as we go further, we'll be talking about what is to be done. Some uh, will be opening up the phone lines at... 608-256-2001, extension 9, at half past the hour. If you want to join in this conversation today with a question or comment, again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Max, you say in your piece, and just to, uh, kind of to carry this theme for a bit, that the House majority is now openly aligned uh, with the January 6th insurrectionists against those who defended democracy. But there's also other elements of, this, of the establishment of the, of the state. Um, talk about, you say that MAGA, MAGA operatives run the Supreme Court. What does that mean? Uh, you know, the, the mainstream media covers the Supreme Court as if there's conservatives and liberals and that uh, the different legal arguments are what determines what, uh, you know, people's interpretation of the law and the Constitution is what determines the outcome of specific cases. Um, that's the surface. Uh, the Federalist Society formed in, I think, was 1982, openly announced that its program was to develop a, a, a federal judiciary that would defend their worldview, which is no union rights or workers' rights, uh, women's rights, rollback civil rights and the Voting Rights Act, all the laws, you know, to uh, allegedly the U.S. society had become colorblind and anything that took uh, the history or current realities of racism uh, into account would be uh, ruled unconstitutional. Uh, and they trained, they developed a pipeline uh, to stack the federal judiciary with political operatives who shared that objective. Uh, so you now have uh, five members of the Supreme Court. Uh, Roberts is not quite in that category, although he comes out of the same world. 
you have five members of the Supreme Court who are political operatives of that particular worldview. And their legal opinions are full of inconsistencies. Uh, you know, people dissect them and say this doesn't add up. Originalism means this. And in a different case, it means something completely different. And that's because they're political operatives, just like the Freedom Caucus. Um, they're not they're not jurists. It's a political takeover. There have been some excellent pieces about this. I would strongly recommend people look at uh, Michael Podhorzer. He was special assistant to the president of the AFL-CIO, convenes researchers and analysts uh, in his weekend readings. He talks about uh, to the Supreme Court and runs through the history of the Federalist Society and how basically it's a political operation. It's taken over the judiciary. And even some of the most liberal and progressive writers uh, are still fighting on the grounds. Uh, I mean, you, it's important to dissect the legal opinions uh, and show their inconsistencies and their problems and what's wrong with them. And uh, Katenji Brown uh, Jackson, uh, you know, in her argument talked about, uh, you know, her debut on the Supreme Court pointed out that if you're an originalist and you were believe in the 13th, 14th Amendment, that uh, was all about uh dealing with race and white supremacy. They don't care, those other operatives. It's in one year, you know, Alito makes a joke about black people wearing uh, Klan robes. It's completely a political, uh, it's completely a political uh, operation. Again, you're listening to Max Elbaum, a member of the Convergence Magazine editorial board and co-editor with Linda Burnham, excuse me, and Maria Poblet of the 2022 title, Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. Talking about elections, let's turn our attention back to the results of November of the November midterm elections, uh, especially at the state level. Um, you had a, a heading in your article t- that talked about how the red wave hit 35 states. There was lots of celebration about how the red wave so-called, did not materialize or, or that it fell flat. But you're saying something else. Yeah. Um, in 15 or so states where there were uh, prominent election denier candidates at the top of the ticket, uh, the combination of uh, a tremendous mobilization among the core constituencies for progressive politics, workers, people of color, youth, women, uh, and the defection of a layer of Republicans or conservatives who did not go along with the extremism of MAGA defeated some of those high-profile candidates. So that was the case in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Nevada. Uh, some of those states uh, where you saw the defeat of characters like, uh, you know, Dr. Oz, uh, the, the the two uh, that guy Fincham for attorney uh, for Secretary of State in Arizona, uh, Blake Masters uh, for Senate in Arizona. There are a bunch of states uh, where the widely publicized, you know, uh, Georgia Herschel Walker uh, were defeated, uh, and the fact that the Republicans only won a six or seven seat majority in the House was considered a victory also since historical expectations were that um, the Democrats would lose 20 or 30 or 40 seat uh, majority. So those were important victories. And But if you look at the results and you do a deeper dive, in 35 or so states, where there wasn't that kind of high-profile election denier at the top of the ticket, essentially the results were the same as the predicted red wave. Republican turnout exceeded Democratic turnout. Uh, The percentage of votes for the Republican House candidates was greater than for the Democrats. In the South, uh, the, the traditional Confederate states plus others that are now considered in the South region Republicans gained 30 or 40, I think it was 50 states, um, 50 state legislature positions. There's an excellent piece by Chris Crown uh, in Facing South about what happened in the state elections there. 
So it's much more complicated than just saying the red wave was defeated. Uh, certainly some of the some of the things that MAGA wanted to achieve were beaten, and we should take pride in that. Uh, and a huge contribution was made by grassroots groups that have organized in various states with a long-term power-building strategy to rebuild progressive political power, not just democratic political power, Democratic Party, but an independent progressive poll uh, that has to function given the structures of the U.S. electoral system on the Democratic Party ballot line. Uh, so there's a lot uh, that people accomplished in 2022, uh, but it would be naive to just see that as a victory. The MAGA people won a lot of things and positioned themselves. They purged most of the uh, Republican electeds who hadn't in Congress, who had not been election deniers, and their delegation in Congress in the House is further to the right than the one in 2020. Talk about the, uh, you, you noted that the Republicans hold trifectas, control of both uh, legislature, both houses of the legislatures and the governorship in 22 states. Uh, and they're implementing the MAGA agenda in those states. Uh, you know, voter suppression, gerrymandering, uh, uh, preemption rules, which means there was just a major story about Tennessee about this, uh, where the states forbid urban areas within those states from doing things like rent control, uh, minimum wage, various other programs that in urban areas, there's a majority for a more progressive legislation. State preemption prevents them from doing that. Uh, you know, after Reconstruction was overturned in the 19th century, uh, basically the Jim Crow South was what a lot of uh, political scientists and historians called authoritarian enclaves within an overall federal system. I mean, the U.S. nationally was argued it was a democracy of a certain sort anyway, a limited democracy, but essentially you had one-party states when authoritarian Jim Crow racist rule uh, in these authoritarian enclaves in the former Confederacy. And now that's been nationalized. So if you look at what's happening in Florida, in Texas, in the other states controlled uh, where there are Republican trifectas, they're already implementing, um, they're already implementing the right-wing agenda. They're not waiting to see till they get full control of the federal government. And the doctrine of nullification is coming back. There's cases going up before the Supreme Court about the ability uh, that's coming from the attorney generals in Texas and other states that say that the states have the rights to nullify what the federal regulations are, whether it's around immigration or certain other things. Um, and, you know, it's it, we're seeing a 21st century replay of uh, the lead up to the Civil War. You know, um, Chuck, our engineer, tells us that we already have a couple callers that want to get in with a question or a comment with our guest, Max Elbaum. So let's go to the first caller. Hi, Adam, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you, Alan, for having brought this uh, guest on. Max Elbaum is an incredibly fine uh, analyst. I have a problem with his emphasis uh, almost completely on the election process and the and what's happening in the in the state legislatures in Congress I lived in Latin America for several years uh, worked worked down there and I can tell you that the the component of uh, both uh, of violence and there's two sources of violence and he no one's talking about one of them in particular the first is the paramilitary groups who are busy regrouping and I believe that their violence is uh, very essential in the months leading up to the 2024 election. The second thing that isn't being talked about is the security corporations who have between 70,000 and 100,000 people on their backup payrolls that include a substantial number of uh, right-wing uh, uh, veterans and so on. Um, these things are going to be the standby since if the armed forces, the Pentagon, doesn't go along, they will rely on things like sheriff's departments, but also on the creation of violence, irregular violence outside in which the security corporations 
would play a role. Thank you, I Caller. I think that this goes along with the failure to talk enough about the independent base as uh, a self-organized uh, force that will push uh, the parliamentary leadership of the uh, of the right, the congressional leadership. We'll Caller. Yeah, let's let's bring let's bring it back to Max for some response. Max Elbaum. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, yes, political violence. I think we spent the first few minutes of this show talking about that, and there's uh, collaboration between the people, the paramilitaries that you just described, Adam, uh, and and the uh, people in Congress who are essentially moving to delegitimize any investigation of them. And give them a green light to do to play the role of the brown shirts. So absolutely, we're going to be facing. Um, like I said, it was uh, too many similarities to the buildup to the Civil War. Uh, you, you see, you're going to see right wing political violence. Uh, we saw it yesterday or the day before that guy in uh, New Mexico uh, who shot up, uh, you know, organized the crew of people to shoot up the homes of uh, Democratic elected officials. Um, and we're going to see that not just directed against elected officials. Uh, I mean, I think the squad uh, needs bodyguards. Uh, people, they're being targeted, especially Ilhan Omar lately from McCarthy, uh, vendetta against them, uh, left groups. Uh, you know, we saw the assassination in Portland. Uh, essentially an execution of uh, that person in Portland who had, uh, was accused of uh, uh, defending some of the protesters during the George Floyd uprising there. Um, so, yeah, absolutely right. This is uh, the kind of political violence that we haven't seen in the United States since the mass resistance to Jim uh, to desegregation in the early 60s. Let's, uh, we have another caller waiting. Hello, Joanne, you're on the air. Yes, fantastic show. I have a question about this election denial situation. Uh, I'm a computer uh, professional. I've, I'm, I teach at the local university. I'm wondering about the future for questions about voting machines and the integrity of voting machines. Uh, we've we've um, changed the discourse and branded anybody who's questioning these voting machines as some type of a, a kook, when it, whereas there are some very, very important issues that we need to consider about who owns those those machines. Well, we, we, they should be they should be owned, of course, by the people, and of course uh, checked by professionals, um, and, and 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 many other issues about how voting is conducted, instead of of uh, lumping this into some discourse that may be a red herring. I mean, it may be that we're being distracted from these really deep questions about the integrity of our votes by a few people who are stretching some uh, uh, notions about uh, uh, the, the 2000, uh, uh, the 2020 elections into, into fantasy. Again, uh, how do we bring this discussion back into the integrity of our voting system? Thank you, Joanne. Well, I think, uh, yeah, it's a very important point. I mean, uh, the, the election deniers will pick up on whatever argument works. You know, it's throw spaghetti against the wall and see what works. It's mail-in ballots. It's people stealing uh, things from, uh, you know, the, the Michigan accusation was that the people were doing phony uh, paper ballots and dumping them in, uh, you know, drop boxes. It's early voting, it's voting machines, it's who counts the votes in the voting machines, all of those things. Um, so they'll throw anything against the wall that sticks. Um, the key question here is who's controlling the voting systems in those countries? You know, this has been something that most people in this country have taken for granted since 1965 anyway, in the passage of the Voting Rights Act that there were nonpartisan uh, elected officials uh, and civil servants who managed the electoral uh, voting in their particular communities, statewide or municipalities, who were honest about counting the votes in whichever technical fashion they were done. That's under threat right now. 
and then if you have a system like that, of course, then there has to be safeguards. There has to be over no form. No, there's not a technical solution to this. Uh, it's the people in charge have to follow the whatever the rules are and be fair minded for an honest count. Uh, and that's uh, under threat because the right wing has made it. They're not they're not shy about it. They're trying to control the election machinery, and they're trying to control it by people who uh, don't uh, follow evidence. They just say, I mean, the guy in Arizona's line was, uh, you know, how could Trump have lost Arizona because I don't know anyone who didn't vote for him. So therefore, it must have been rigged. I mean, when you have people who are thinking like that, if they're in charge of the election, it doesn't matter what safeguards you have. You know, we have one more caller I want to get to. Uh, Barb, you're on the air, and then we'll return to where we go from here. Barb, hi, you're on hi. the air. Hi. Um, hi, Max. Um, my question, as always, is what is the impact of all of this on foreign policy and the the militarization and the sort of empire that the U.S. has had um, around the globe? Because traditionally it's always been sort of a bipartisan project that you know people don't disagree much on foreign policy and it's usually a bad foreign policy and there's been noises that people make now particularly over ukraine where some of the right-wing forces are seen to be questioning whether we should be getting involved and i think that's actually sort of a red herring and and i'm very concerned about what this is going to mean for the issue of, of further war and militarism, and I'd like you to comment on that, and I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, thanks, Barb. Uh, we're in a lot of trouble on issues of war and militarism. It's been the weakest uh, front of the opposition to MAGA and Trumpism uh, and politics generally on the progressive side since 2015, People, uh, for all kinds of reasons, including the complexity of the international situation, but also the traditional uh, provincialism and national chauvinism that permeates U.S. society, uh, it's been extremely difficult to rebuild the kind of peace and anti-militarist movement that's needed. Um, the differences that exist now, uh, the MAGA bloc uh, is... Uh, Partly, uh, the Ukraine situation is extremely complicated and very controversial within the left. Uh, but the MAGA bloc is not opposed uh, to, to um, they're not opposed to U.S. hegemony. They're not opposed to U.S. militarism. They want it used in a particular way. They don't want to see U.S. casualties abroad. They want to see the U.S. bomb and it went back to the Stone Age who defies U.S. Uh, diktat. Uh, and there is a particular attraction in the MAGA bloc to the most right-wing governments around the world. Uh, Trump and Netanyahu, Modi in India, Duterte and now Marcos in the Philippines, and Putin, who has uh, portrayed himself, he's become a hero of the right uh, as this, uh, a defender of white Christian civilization, homophobia, anti-gay, all that kind of thing. Um, the Biden administration is uh, no friend of ours on this. Uh, their view of U.S. hegemony, they have a slightly different tactical view of how U.S. hegemony should uh, be um, enforced. And one of the reasons they're opposed to the MAGA bloc is that they don't think it's an effective strategy for long-term U.S. hegemony. So we have a very tough situation on our hands. Uh, in terms of combating uh, the rise of fascism in the United States and rebuilding the kind of peace and solidarity, international solidarity movement that can contend with the forces who are against the MAGA bloc, uh, but who still are for U.S. hegemony uh, and intervention around the world. It's a very tough problem. A lot of people are worrying, working on it, but so far it's been extremely difficult um, for various reasons, um, to rebuild the kind of international solidarity movement that uh, existed in the 60s and the 80s 
uh, and for a period around the movement against the war on terror and the Iraq war. Now, clearly, Max Elbaum, the MAGA bloc is preparing for 2024. That while the tactics they'll, they'll, as you say, that while the tactics they'll use are unlikely to duplicate those of 2020, the goal of replacing majority rule with a white minority theocratic state, which you refer to as a, a U.S. variant of fascism, remains the same. So what is to be done? How do we begin to counter this uh, rightist offensive? Uh well, the first thing to say is that we need a full-spectrum approach. Uh, we, the Defeating MAGA at the ballot box is essential, but it's nowhere near enough. Uh, this is a year-round, two-year struggle between now and 2024 on every single level, uh, messaging, organizing at the grassroots, building uh, the political strength and the organizational strength of uh, the constituencies that have a stake in progressive social change, rebuilding the labor movement, rebuilding the peace movement, the anti-racist movements, institutionalizing that strength, uh, building messaging, uh, combating at the local level issues around housing, around the assault on uh, education that under the guise of you know preventing critical race theory from being taught. Uh, this is, it's not, it's, it's every, no, no, no terrain can be conceded to the enemy. Uh, the electoral thing will take on a particular importance because the way things come together in terms of shaping public opinion uh, and how motivated people are to fight, uh, the electoral system in the current realities of U.S. society is still the place where it ultimately gets decided who controls the Congress and who controls the presidency. So in 2024, uh, we have to prevent MAGA from gaining a majority in the Senate, gaining the White House, and keeping its majority in the House. And then we're going to have to defend the result if we succeed in that. And that is not going to be strictly an electoral thing. Uh, it has to involve mass action. It has to involve preparation for mass action. Uh, you know, there's an interesting, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, the Power Concedes Nothing book, the chapter on Michigan is about the mass action led by uh, the groups in Michigan, the grassroots groups, uh, to, prov to ensure the certification of the election. Uh, and what they had to do in terms of mobilization to force a couple of those Republican electoral commissioners to vote a certain way, uh, meeting them at the airport when they came back from a meeting with Trump, uh, where he tried to persuade them not to um, not to um, not to certify the results. Our Reyes uh, from I think uh, Stand Up Michigan, or I forget, I forget, I'm blanking on the immediate name of the organization. Uh, that he's in wrote a great piece about that in, in, in the book. Um, so it's a full spectrum of fight back, uh, but we can't concede any arena, including the electoral arena. And that's the one that's the most controversial. Uh, with everybody agrees we should, uh, one way or another, build mass movements and so on. Uh, but I think uh, it's only been in the last few years that the left uh, has moved in and realized that we need to build power in the electoral arena. Uh, that is a messy situation where we're in alliance with some uh, people we don't like. They don't share our long-range goals. Uh, but the urgency of meeting, beating the, uh, what's been now uh, uh, one of the two major parties taken over by uh, quasi-fascism, uh, and building our own independent strength. Max, relatedly, you talk about the need for the construction of a more united social justice trend uh, that can take independent initiatives, that it's a must. Talk about that. Um, akin to the, the united front or uh, popular front of, of, you know, of the past, well, in the 1980s, there was the Rainbow Coalition uh, connected with Jesse Jackson's campaigns, but having a somewhat independent existence. And what that meant 
is that everyone in the country uh, could talk about the rainbow people. You know, we didn't use the language about uh, branding at that time, but it was a brand. And it meant that a progressive pole in politics had a national uh, presence that people could see and feel and identify with a particular political force on the ground. Uh, and it was identified with the black community leadership, with peace, uh, and with fighting uh, for workers' rights, farmers' rights, LGBTQ rights. Jesse spoke at the 1987 um, National March for LGBTQ rights. Um, and there was an interplay between grassroots organizing and the electoral side. So Jesse would show up on picket lines and he would show up uh, in, in, and, and other rainbow activists uh, would support strikes. And then in turn, that would build an electoral thing. And that could only be done because there was a nationwide formation that had attained enough scale uh, and functioned in enough of a way that there was a, a progressive current. And if you were in the progressive movement and you stayed out of the rainbow, you were marginal. Now, certainly there were differences on the left and people, uh, the rainbow was no, uh, you know, it wasn't all inside, it was a coalition. It spread, shed from, you know, there were revolutionaries involved, there were progressive reformers, there were other political forces. Um, but there was something on a national scale that people could see, touch, and feel and build their strength. Uh, and we need something like that today. We don't have that. Uh, the closest thing we have to it, we had it briefly uh, when Bernie was running. You know, there were the Bernie people. Uh, but Bernie didn't build the kind of independent organization like the Rainbow. There were other things going on, too. Uh, and, you know, there are many uh, independent forces uh, Working Families Party, Justice Democrats, DSA, uh, Progressive Democrats of America, Our Revolution. There's a whole bunch of state-based power-building organizations. Uh, there were national coalitions in 2020. There was a United Against Trump that uh, brought together uh, grassroots forces. But there hasn't been the kind of institutionalization. And, and, uh, and all those forces in 2020... Uh, you know, more or less, uh, you know, with some partial exceptions, the DSA was a partial exception, uh, had a view uh, that was like uh, Sanders' view. Uh, the right is the most dangerous. They have to be defeated. Uh, we have to vote to keep them out. And we have to build an anti-corporate uh, working class progressive poll uh, and with the independent strength of the progressive movement. Uh, so there's a lot of in that political space. Uh, but those forces, and they cooperate with each other. There's been a lot of cooperation in state by state with different state tables. There's different national alignments. Um, but there is not yet uh, one institutional force with the kind of brand and presence that existed like the rainbow. Uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out how to move in that direction, uh, but it hasn't gelled yet. Um, and that's what allows... Uh, a movement to uh, make the whole greater than the sum of its parts and magnify and amplify and take a different kind of uh, presence within national politics. Max Elbaum, we have, oh, approximately eight minutes left in the hour before we have to part company. Um, you co-edited uh, this book I already referenced, Power Concedes Nothing. It essays the election of 2020. It's a book described as, as, quote, the most comprehensive single thing out there on the work of social justice forces who threw down in 2020 their accomplishments and limitations. Talk about the book some, uh, what uh, its intent, its hope. Uh, it's a large book with numerous con contributors. How does it inform what we've been discussing? Uh Linda Marie and I thought 2020 was an exceptional experience. Uh, we knew we were going to be fighting against this right-wing takeover of the Republican Party for some time. There were a lot of lessons uh, from the work that was done in 2020, and we wanted those lessons to be out there in the words of the organizers themselves, not just the journalists and pundits 
uh, and analysts who cover uh, things, but we wanted them, the organizers themselves to speak about what they learned and what they did. Um, and uh, so we managed to assemble, there's 20 some contributors, there's five sections. The first one is power in the states uh, and it's got interviews and articles by people who fought in Georgia, Arizona, um, Florida, Michigan, um, uh, uh, some other states, I think seven or eight states that were crucial battleground states in that period. Uh, the second, uh, the second chapter, the second section is uh, communities of color drove the win uh, with analysts and people who were involved in the struggles uh, in the Latino, Native American, Black, uh, and Asian American communities, uh, including some of the key people in Georgia and the Black community, uh, Black Voters Matter, uh, in the Latino chapter by one of the Mijente people. The third chapter is Workers on the Doors. Unite Here, uh, which led the was the pioneer in developing protocols for uh, canvassing, in-person canvassing, uh, even amid the pandemic, and played a key role in Arizona uh, and in, in Nevada and Georgia and other states. Uh, there's the uh, Labor Council in Houston, the National Domestic Workers. Um, fourth chapters about democratic socialism and Bernie's campaign. Uh, with some key people in Bernie's campaign analyzing the lessons of that and the other groups uh, in that world. Uh, and the last chapter was about some of the key national coalitions and national formations like uh, the Working Families Party, Seed the Vote Project, and so on, uh, all by organizers. Um, and those lessons, uh, you know, in particular about how you motivate those voters who've been neglected by both political parties. Uh, Year-round organizing and how you synergize an electoral strategy with a long-term power building strategy. Uh, dealing with uh, issues uh, of race, of gender, of uh, discrimination against uh, people who are LGBTQ uh, and how that's done internally and externally. So these are the kind of issues that you're trying to build a progressive current, a social justice movement. Um, you have to grapple with these tough, these tough issues. Uh, and there was a lot learned in 2020, especially by the groups that reached some amount of scale. I mean, these groups uh, arguably were decisive in some of the key battleground states. So, you know, that 2020 election was damn close. I think 50,000 votes shifting in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada and we'd be living through the second Trump term instead of what we're, uh, the space we bought. Um, I guess the, the, the last one thing I'll add uh, about that's mentioned in the book, but it goes beyond that is we have to put this moment in historical perspective. What we're living through is the most intense moment of the 60 year backlash against all the gains of the 1960s. Uh, and piled on top of that, it's a backlash that not only wants to reverse the gains of the 60s, the end of Jim Crow, the modern women's movement, uh, the end of racist immigration quotas, all of that that was won in the 60s, the anti-war movement's revitalization, but it's a, want to reverse the gains of the 1930s as well. Uh, you know, smashing union rights, Social Security, Medi Medicare is a product of the 60s, but Social Security, the whole safety net thing. Um, so we are at a period where that backlash has been building since an hour after the Civil Rights Act in 1964 was passed and the 1965 Civil uh, Voting Rights Act was passed. Conscious right wing forces um, planning out and it's come to its most intense period now. Uh, in 2020 and 2022, we fought that to a stalemate. That's the big achievement, but we're in a stalemate right now. We're in a stalemate with the MAGA bloc. The majority of the country is anti-fascist and there's a powerful social justice trend within that anti-fascist coalition. Uh, neither that social justice trend or the centrists are capable of defeating MAGA on their own, so we're in an alliance with one another. And the question in 2025 
who takes office, what the composition of federal power in 2025 is going to come down to this. Are we going to move toward, is this stalemate going to be broken in the direction of a quasi-fascist, the new form of American fascism? Or is it going to be broken in beginning a new progressive cycle towards something like a third reconstruction of this country? Uh, you know, many of us think that that's got to culminate in socialism, but it's not going to culminate in socialism in 2025. But at the beginning of a new progressive cycle, which I think resonates in U.S. history as a third reconstruction, or are we going to be in a continued stalemate, fighting one defensive election after another until we've built a social justice movement that's strong enough to really take the initiative and move things? Um I think this is the moment we're in. Max uh, uh, It's going to be a really tough few years. We have but a minute left. Give a quick word about the magazine you're working with, Convergence. Just just a brief. Yeah, Convergence uh, is dedicated to fighting the right and building the left and trying to help cohere that kind of new progressive trend, some 21st century version of the rainbow or the alliance that was anchored by the CIO in the 1930s or the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Uh, fight, you know, uh, Tarso Ramos, the director of political research associates, is pioneered use to the framework of block and build, you know, block baga, maga, and build the independent power of the left. And Convergence is uh, an advocate of that. You can find it online, convergencemag.com. And Convergence was the sponsor of the Power Concedes Nothing book. Um, So So, punch in power concedes nothing. So Max Obama, we have to uh, part our ways just here. Uh, It's been a, it's been a quick hour. There's always so much more we could talk about. So I want to thank you very much. Max Elbaum is a member of the Convergence Magazine editorial board, uh, co-editor of Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. I want to thank Chuck uh, for engineering, uh, Jade for helping to produce. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Supported, live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and supported, live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and supported, live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and support it. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level.